Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in a new mini-series on spiritual gifts. The series is called, Out of Many, One. In this series, we're looking at what the Bible reveals to us about these God-given gifts. In today's talk, we look at the sign gifts. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. time of worship this morning, I feel like we ought to just, you know, uh, offer an invitation, close in prayer and go home. <laughs> Don't you laugh so hard. Don't count on that. All right. Uh, open up instead to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, we've been talking the last couple of weeks on spiritual gifts. If you remember, a spiritual gift is a divine enablement. It's an ability that God gives every believer. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, he manifests, he shows himself through doing the work of God through you. And so it's an ability that God gives you to serve the church. It's an ability God gives you to perform a ministry of your own because every member is a ministry. Every member is a body part. That's what member means. It's a body part. And we're all part of the body of Christ. Someone's a finger, someone's a toe, somebody's a foot. And so we all perform a function within the body of Christ. So the first week we talked about speaking gifts, those equipping of gifts, those pastors, teachers, etc., that equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Then we talked about the saints that do the work of the ministry in the serving gifts. And this week we're going to talk about one of those mysterious things, the sign gifts, okay? So there's a lot of uh, confusion as to sign gifts and what they are and should we be seeking them? Do we have them today? If so, what do we have? And there's, let me just tell you, there's not universal agreement here. So whatever you're bringing in with you about sign gifts from the street, can we just all agree that we're going to focus on what the Word of God says? It's okay if certain people disagree, okay? But let's make sure that whatever we believe, it's not just based upon experience, it's based upon the word of God itself. And that's really important because people often are looking for signs and experiences and we will attribute them to God when the scripture doesn't necessarily call that a sign gift. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, years ago, there was a lady named uh, Maria Rubio and she was uh, in, what is it, Lake Arthur, New Mexico. And she's over there and she's preparing dinner and she's frying up some tortillas, okay? And as she's doing that, she goes to flip it over and she notices, behold, on her tortilla is this burn mark that strongly resembles at least what some artists you know, draw as, you know, what we think Jesus may have possibly looked like, and evidently she saw Jesus face in this tortilla. And at that point, she builds this shrine for this tortilla of Jesus, and thousands and thousands of people flock to the shrine of this Jesus tortilla. And in her newspaper interviewed her, and she says, I do, know, do not know why this has happened to me, but God has come into my life through this tortilla. Is that what we're supposed to be seeking? Is that, is that the kind of sign? Is that what it means to be a Christian life? Is that we look for God in the mysterious? Uh, we experienced that ourselves. We moved to Orlando right after Bible college in 1996. And that Christmas, everywhere on the news was something called Our Lady of Clearwater. Let me tell you what that was. Some window washers were washing the windows of, I think it's like the Seminole Finance Corporation building. And the image and the outline of the you could see it there. It's sort of kind of, if you use your imagination well, it resembles the Virgin Mary. And so cars were flocking in around and crowding the downtown. 600,000 people are reported as having visited Our Lady of Clearwater, seeing it as a sign from God that he is among us. Is this the kind of thing that believers are supposed to be seeking after? Is this in the scripture? No, by the way, neither of these are in scripture. We're not, we're not called to try to find God in the, in the bizarre, in the mysterious, in the potent, potentially coincidental. I mean, I, tomorrow morning when I pour my bowl of Cheerios, am I supposed to look for a cross in there? Oh, behold, God has spoken to me. I'm not, I'm not trying to be facetious here either. Are we to look for God in mystery? I saw a cloud formation. I know that's God telling me that I should therefore move and buy this house. Some of you may be kind of chuckling to yourselves, but there's a lot of Christians who live, that's their truth. They're looking for the coincidental. They're looking for the mysterious. They're looking for signs. 
So we're going to see what does the Bible say about signs and sign gifts and should it be seeking after such things. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, once again, it's one of the four passages on spiritual gifts and he's speaking here, and this is by the way, 1 Corinthians, the earliest written chronologically of all of the spiritual gift passages. And so he mentions the miraculous gifts. And so they're listed here. And as we read this, some of these are going to be miracles and sign gifts, and some of these will not be, and we'll kind of differentiate that a little bit. So he says in verse 7, to each, he's talking about each believer, every believer who has the Holy Spirit within them. To each believer is given the manifestation of the Spirit. As we said before, a manifestation is the outward showing that the Holy Spirit is within you. It's how it shows itself in your life through these spiritual gifts, through the fruit of the Spirit and more. So the manif- to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, a gift for the, how do we use spiritual gifts? It's for the common good. Spiritual gifts aren't given to us so that we can just go home in the privacy of our house and, and use them to bless ourselves. Spiritual gifts are all given so that we can bless one another. So all of us have a spiritual gift, he says. All of those are empowered by the Spirit of God, and all of those are intended to be used within the context of the church to bless other people. That's a spiritual gift. So he defines what spiritual gifts are. Then he says, he gives us examples. He says, for to one is given through the spirit. These are spiritual gifts, not talents. The utterance of wisdom. Then he mentions the utterance of knowledge. He says, according to the same spirit, another faith by the same spirit. To another, the gift of healings by the one spirit. Again, he keeps saying one spirit indicating that we may all be different as believers. We serve differently. We have different giftings. We're not all the same. We serve in different ways, equally valuable before God because it's the same spirit of God that's flowing through us. And so the one who preaches and the one who pours Kool-Aid for kids at VBS, no less important. They're equally valuable and equally, I would say, equally rewarded by God eternally because you're working through the spirit of God. And then he says there to another gift of healing, by, the same, by one spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Many of these are sign gifts. Some of them, let me just say this, are not necessarily sign gifts. I say not necessarily because they're listed here, but we never see them anywhere else in Scripture. They're never fleshed out. They're never explained. And so we can't definitively say, ah, that's a sign gift. So let's look at some of these that I personally believe are not sign gifts. Again, not universal agreement here, but I'm going to tell you why I believe what I believe. And you study the scripture yourself and compare everything we teach to the word of God. That's your standard. So word of faith, word of knowledge in this particular text is called the utterance of faith, the utterance of knowledge. And so the one, the only thing we know about these two gifts, by the way, they're never mentioned anywhere else in scripture. We never see them described as being fleshed out or used anywhere else in Scripture, so we don't have any example that we can point to. All we have is the words themselves and that they're a spiritual gift. So we know it's a speaking gift. It's an utterance. Somebody is speaking, and what are they proclaiming? The knowledge of God. And so it's somebody who is particularly gifted in being able to, I believe, organize and articulate the knowledge of God. I think probably many college professors probably have the utterance of knowledge. They're able to clarify knowledge to people. To another, the utterance of wisdom. All we know about this, again, is that it's a spoken word and that it's proclaiming the wisdom of God. That's all we've got. So I pray, and the wisdom of God, by the way, is the practical application. It means skill. It's a word that means skill in life. It's the practical application of the word of God. And so these are people who are showing you how to use the word of God in a practical daily way. I think a lot of these people focus on the family. I think many of them probably have the utterance of wisdom. These are people who are just showing you, you look at one scripture and you go, I read that, but I don't see anything on how to improve my marriage. And the, word, the guys in the focus on the family, they're saying, oh no, and this is why you treat your wife and take her out on a date, and this is why you don't speak harshly to her. And, and so they're giving you this utterance of wisdom. And then he mentions faith. You say, I thought we all live by faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The just shall live by faith. We all live by faith. How is that a spiritual gift? So you're right, we all exercise faith. Just like many of these gifts, you may not be gifted in that area, but you may still be called to teach your kids the Bible, even though you're not a teacher. 
You may not be an evangelist by spiritual gifting, but God calls all of us to be a light and to share our faith and share the gospel with people. In the same way, we are all called to exercise faith, but there are some of you here in this room, I believe in every church, there's some of you who have a uniquely powerful gift of faith, that God has given you the ability to trust God in difficult and impossible situations. These people are incurably optimistic. They're not the Eeyores of the world. Well, that's probably gonna rain. I know we're having this thing going on Saturday, but it's probably gonna fail. We're gonna have to probably bring in all the inflatables. And... But this person with the gift of faith says, brother, let's trust God. I believe God's gonna take care of this. You know, and they just have this unique ability just to believe that God is gonna do what his word says he will. And so that's the gift of faith. Then he says the gift of prophecy. We explained that a little bit earlier when we talked about the speaking gifts. A prophecy strictly defined is the proclamation of a divine word, okay? Now, back in the Old Testament and other times when God was giving us new scripture, it was brand new, and God could even speak in real time. Other times, God would give him a message to deliver. In the very same way, friends, is this a book of prophecy? It is, isn't it? Second Peter 1 calls this the book, a book of prophecy. All the words of the Bible are an utterance from God. They're the word of God, and so when we proclaim, we read, and we explain what the word of God says, we're exercising a prophetic gift. Now, am I claiming that God gives me new words? I want you to hear this very clearly. No, I'm not, I don't believe God is giving us new words. Why? Because the Bible is complete. It is sufficient. And so don't, ex don't expect me to say, I've got a new word from the Lord, putting my words and my thoughts and my opinions on par with scripture. That's never gonna happen. And quite frankly, if you have somebody who's adding to Scripture, you ought not be listening to that person anyway. We have a completed Word of God. The Bible says that we are to be faithful to preach the Word in season, out of season. Paul says, I did not shrink back from proclaiming in you the whole counsel of God. Okay, so we are not to add to Scripture. But that's what prophecy is. It's a proclamation of divine truth. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. This is kind of a mysterious one here. What does that mean? Uh, to discern or distinguish between spirits. This word distinguish, diacresis, it means to make a decision. It means to decide between. That you see, it's either this or it's this. Okay, it's the ability to discern or it's the spiritual gift of judging. And I don't mean like somebody's judging you. Oh, you didn't wear a coat and tie today? Uh, that's my spiritual gift. I have the discerning of spirits. No, that's not the gift of judging like that, but judging truth and error. Okay, discerning between spirits. Why does he say discerning spirits? I mean, are we talking to ghosts? Is this the sixth sense that we see dead people? Did I ruin that movie for anybody? Uh, are we talking to ghosts here? What is this discerning between spirits? This spirit's good, this spirit's bad. When the Bible's talking about spirits, he's talking, oftentimes he'll talk about the spirit of this age. He's talking about the ideology, the philosophy, the beliefs of this age. And so anytime truth is shared, God sees that as being motivated by the Holy Spirit. For instance, Paul tells, you know, or Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus say in response to that? Flesh, in Matthew 16, 17, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. How did he know this to be true? How did he utter this proclamation of truth? But he says, rather, my Father who is in heaven, God, through his Spirit, has revealed this to you to be true. And so the Spirit behind truth is God. Likewise, there is a Spirit behind every error. Error doesn't come about just naturally. We don't just create error. Satan and his minions are promoting error to combat and to counter God. That's what really spiritual warfare is. It's a truth battle between light and dark. God is giving out his truth and Satan and his demons are trying to promote error to us so that we believe a lie. And so that's why in 1 John 4.1, he says, beloved, that's you, by the way, beloved, do not believe every spirit. He's not saying that we're going home and talking to ghosts. He says, do not believe every spirit. What he's talking about is do not believe the spirit behind every teaching. He believes that there's a spirit motivating every teacher. When they talk about metaphysical things, there's a spirit motivating. It's either the spirit of God or it's the spirit of something else. So he says, when we hear people teaching, we are to, we are to test the spirits, he says. So he says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't be... Don't be spiritually naive that every preacher who comes on the radio, every preacher you turn on the TV, every preacher your friend recommends you a book, don't just take it hook, line, and sinker without 
evaluating, is this person of a, a good theological tradition and background? Do they, are they teaching the word of God? Are they just talking out of their experiences? So he says, don't believe every spirit. Don't be spiritually naive. Don't be a child, as we talked about last week, tossed to and fro. He says, don't believe every spirit, but he says, test the spirits. It's a word that means to, to compare it to a standard. We are to test the spirits. Every teaching that you hear, we are to compare it to a standard. To test them, he says, to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we're not to be spiritually naive children, just every new popular book, just because Oprah's talking about a book, we don't go out and buy it. We test the spirits. We evaluate this, we evaluate their theology, we evaluate what's being said by the word of God. And friends, can I tell you, you evaluate everything that I say today by the word of God. This is why we throw up these scriptures, so that you can take notes and you can go home and you can study to see whether or not these things are true. Because just because I say something doesn't make it true. What makes it true is because it's the word of God. Now I'm giving you my promise as best I know how. I'm gonna take the word of God, I'm gonna explain it, I'm gonna show you why I arrive at the conclusions I do, but I want you to go home and I want you to test it to see whether or not it's approved by the word of God. Every teacher we do this with, the, the Bereans did it with Paul in Acts 17. They went and saw if everything that he said was true. They compared it to the, he compared scriptures with what Paul was teaching. Now let's look briefly at those things which are clearly and or obviously sign gifts. He talks about, number two, he talks about miracles. But first we need to distinguish what a miracle is. We use that term miracle, I think, very loosely today. You know, you're, you're driving to Walmart, you've got to get some medicine at the pharmacy, and it's raining. And so what do you do? You start praying. You enlist your children to start praying. God, give me a parking spot. And all of a sudden, this never happens but a parking spot opens up right in front of the doors. And what do we say? It's a miracle, right? And other times, maybe we need to pay something off. And, we'll, and all of a sudden, we'll reach into our pocket and we'll find maybe a couple hundred dollars somebody had paid us back, we had lent it out, and we'll, hey, that's the money I needed to pay my bills. It's a miracle. Now, let me say this, I don't wanna detract that somehow God wasn't active in either of those situations. I believe he is. But strictly speaking, that would be called an act of God's providence, not a miracle. God's providence is the outworking of God's love whereby he graciously provides for everything in the universe. That's providence. The outworking of God's love whereby he graciously provides for everything in the universe. So God, in this situation, God is at work in your life. I'm not taking that away. But God is working providentially. He's providing for you. He's working through natural means. A miracle goes outside. It's supernatural. It's not a natural means. It's not a providential thing. John MacArthur defines a miracle this way. He says, a miracle is a supernatural event. Super, meaning it goes beyond nature. You don't find this naturally occurring. A miracle is a supernatural event which has no human explanation. More than that, a miracle is a supernatural event which suspends natural law, okay? So understand the difference between providence and the miraculous. We're not taking away from God's glory by simply identifying something as providential. That a parking spot opened up is something that has happened at other times. It just happened to be there when you needed it, but that's providential, not miraculous, okay? So we've defined the miraculous here. I wanna give you a biblical example of what a true miracle, the gift of miracles, looks like. It's in Acts chapter 13, and Paul is dealing with this, uh, this sorcerer. It says, but Elimus the magician, again, don't think David Copperfield, this is not a guy pulling out card tricks, says pick a card, any card, you know? This is not a guy, you know, who's fun at, at, at kids' birthday parties. Simon, Elimus the sorcerer was a, or magician was a sorcerer, and he was opposing them, it says, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Paul is sharing the gospel with this proconsul, this official. But this magician's trying to turn him away from the truth. So it says, but Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? In other words, the Spirit is motivating this gift looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. You think I preach hard, okay? Uh, he, says, you, he says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And here's the miracle. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you 
and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what happened, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I think this is one of the best biblical examples of a miracle I can think of, because not only does it show you something that clearly goes beyond the natural laws of science, but it also shows you the intended result of a miracle, that somebody was astonished, they were shocked, and it led them to understand that the person speaking is from the Lord. So we're gonna look number three at the gift of healing. And hear me say this, God can heal any way that he chooses. God is God. He is powerful, and I do believe that we're not in a closed system, we're in an open system. In other words, that God is still at work. I'm not a deist. I believe that God is still very active in your lives, and when we pray to God, he still heals people. Are we settled with that? Okay, because we're about to teach on what the gift of healing is. That is different than the gift of healing. Remember, when we're sick today, what are we supposed to do? James chapter five, if any among you is sick, what, do we, what does the Bible say to do? Call for the elders of the church, and what will they do? And he says, you know, they'll pray and anointing with oil, and that was a whole another sermon, but he says, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. That is God acting, whether he chooses providentially or miraculously, that is God choosing to heal. God still does that today. Okay, I'm on record now. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the gift of healing. What is a gift of healing? The gift of healing is when God's power to heal, God gives to some human to dispense. That's the gift of healing. God still heals himself today. Do we, do we have the gift of healing today? Well, first let's understand what the gift of healing is. Do we have faith healers? Are they real? Are they genuine? The gift of healing, if you want to understand what it is, again, you have to take the gift and you always have to compare it to scriptural examples. If it doesn't fit the scriptural example, it's not it. So the scriptural examples of healing that we can look at, we can look at Jesus and we can look at the apostles using the legitimate gifts of healing, God giving man the ability to do miraculous things to heal people. So we're gonna throw up a little chart here for you. We're gonna see here that Jesus heals a lame man, right? This is a tough thing. John 5, we just talked about it. This man at the pool of Bethesda, 38 years lame. Not only does he not just kind of stumble, he just gets up. And not only does he get up, he's able to reach back down and carry his own bed with him. I'm not talking a celiposteropedic, think like a, a kinder mat, okay? But he's still, he's able to stand up and walk. Disciples did the same thing. The apostles did that. Acts chapter three, they healed a layman. They didn't just do like healings that you can't prove. Oh, sorry, Ray, do you have, you know, acid reflux? Be healed. Now, how do we know if we're healed of her gastric reflux that she throws all her tums away at home? We don't know that. But... The gift of healing involves these things that are very obvious and clear. People who are healed, and by the way, whenever God heals a lame man, they don't just kind of do this. Oh, I think, he's, I think he's being healed. I think he's almost there, and the person's stumbling. What do we see? It says they stand up, and even though their legs should be atrophied from disuse, it says they will stand up, and they will jump, and they will leap for joy. That's what healing a lame man looks like. Jesus did it. His apostles did it. Uh, we see that Jesus raised people from the dead, didn't he? Not, not even just talking about himself, but Lazarus. This guy is clearly dead, three days dead, which for the Jews, they required those three days because they thought the spirit of man hovered above him for three days. And then if he came back to life, you know, it, well, it's not a miracle. It's just, you know, that's what happens. So Jesus waited until beyond that period. So it was without a shadow of a doubt. This guy came back from the dead. Jesus did that. Did the apostles raise people from the dead? They sure did. Okay, it's Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. And, there's, and again, there's other things where they, they come back from the dead, but we don't have time to go into all those details. Jesus, it says, is described as healing all kinds of things, not just a few little things that he specializes in. He is able to heal any kind of ailment, up to and including death. The apostles, when they had the gift of healing, weren't just healing a few little things over here. They were able to heal any kind of sickness and disease. Jesus is described in Luke 4 as when at this place where he was healing, it says he healed everybody who came to him. When the apostles healed, Acts chapter 5, it says they healed everybody that came to him. It's not like they picked and chose, oh, Dave, do you have enough faith? We'll heal Dave, you know, we'll heal Jamie, not you, not you, not you, we're gonna heal. You know, it, it says everybody who came to him. This, when people say they have the gift of healing, this is the standard. If they can't do this, 
It's not the biblical gift of healing. And so when we look at the gift of healing today, we have to kind of scratch our heads and say, do people truly have the gift of healing? Friends, I would argue that we do not see this today. I believe that God heals. I believe that we pray and God heals. Notice that Bible, James didn't say uh, later on, he didn't just say, if you're anybody's sick, pray for a healer to come by and lay hands on him and make him well. He says the prayer of faith, that's what we're supposed to do. We'll be praying for the prayer of faith. You ever heard of, there's a famous Christian woman named Johnny, at the time her name was Johnny Erickson. Remember as a kid, my mom always had a book called Johnny as a girl with a paintbrush in her mouth. And I was, what is that book? My mom would tell me this story. And evidently you have this, this young girl, age 18, and she dives into like a shallow pond or lake or something like that. I think he, she hit her head in a rock. And she was turned into a quadriplegic at the tender age of 18. I remember, imagine those of you who are around the age of 18, from here into the rest of your life, you've no longer got use of your body. That's a very depressing situation to be put into. And so her sister moves her out onto her Maryland farm. And she says, one morning we were just uh, you know, doing our activities, our daily you know, feeding and dressing and that kind of stuff. She says, we flipped on the TV and we saw an advertisement for Catherine Kuhlman. Now she's not a, a mainstream name today, but she was back in Johnny Erickson's days. And essentially she was kind of a Benny Hinn type or one of these others, you know, put your hand on the screen, you know, and, we're, and, and, and a faith healer. And so she says, she heard that they're coming to DC. And so she and her sister got in their station wagon because that's what everybody drove back then, remember? Uh, got in their station wagon, they drove over to DC and they're gonna see Catherine Kuhlman. She says that they got there early because they wanted a good seat. She wanted to be right up there in the front where she, when they're like, anybody wanna be healed? She'll be the first one. Well, maybe not to raise her hand, but her sister will be there for her. And so they get there early, but instead of being able to be seated in these choice seats, they discover that she's in a wheelchair and they put her in a special wheelchair section where all the people with wheelchairs and crutches, the lame and uh, the difficult cases get put in the far, far corner. And uh, she says they waited for the show to start. And she says, Catherine Cool came out in her beautiful flowing white gown uh, to this crescendoing organ music. And they had this great music and these hymns and these songs. And eventually the spotlight, you know, went from center stage all the way over to the opposite side of the room where she was. And she heard kind of noises and rumblings. She's like, are people getting healed? And everybody's asking in the wheelchair section, are people getting healed? When is the spotlight gonna come over here? Well, as you may have guessed, the spotlight never goes over there. And Johnny says, she was just thinking, why don't you throw the spotlight over here where all the hard cases are? She says, and before the show even ended, the ushers came forward and began to escort out all the hard cases into the lobby so that they wouldn't clog you know, traffic as people are getting out. And she says, she's sitting there, number 15, in a line of 35, and she's asking herself this question. She says, there's something wrong with this. What, she's thinking, what God, what healer would refuse the prayer of a paralytic? And she was utterly confused because there's somebody who claims to have the gift of healing but doesn't heal in the manner or the example of the apostles. And we still have people today who claim to have the gift of healing, friends, because it's very profitable. You'll sell out books, you'll sell out venues, you'll make a lot of money, you'll have a private jet. But we've gotta be careful that we don't fall prey and be naive and think people who have the gift of healing that don't match up with what the Bible says have the gift of healing. So we have to understand what the gift of healing actually is. Number four, we're just gonna to briefly touch on this one, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And the reason we're only gonna briefly touch this is not because we're ignoring this subject, we're actually gonna focus on this subject next week. And the reason is because this is probably the most prominent of the sign gifts that are discussed in church circles today. Uh, even amongst the Southern Baptist Convention, it's very widely discussed and there is not universal agreement on what tongues are, if they're for today, if they're not. And so I believe it deserves a little bit of extra attention simply because of its popularity even within different denominational circles. It's no longer a Pentecostal doctrine. It's, it's being added to multiple different denominations. So we're gonna examine it more carefully, but I will summarize it for you. Tongues is the speaking of an unstudied language. If you, I speak some Chinese. Ni hao, huan yin ni men, okay? I don't have the gift of tongues. How did I learn Chinese? I spent 11 years in China. That's not the gift of tongues. It's an unstudied, earthly language. And I'll tell you why next week, why it's so important that we define it as an earthly language. Read Acts chapter two. 
Pentecost. You'll see very clearly it's an earthly language. And it was a sign to unbelieving Israels. It wasn't given for believers. You'll see in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's 22, 23, where he says signs, wherefore signs, tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. It was a sign to unbelieving Israel that God is going to the Gentiles. He's taking the gospel somewhere else. And he's provoking his nation Israel to jealousy. And Romans says he's gonna come back to Jews someday. But right now, God is pleased to work through you and I. We're the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel started out there in Jerusalem, Judea. <laughs> you and I here in Kentucky, this is the uttermost parts of the earth to the Jew back then. And so the gospel, God has gone to us and praise God for that. But tongues was assigned to unbelieving Israel. <clears throat> we'll talk a little bit more about that next week so we can kind of clarify things a little bit more because there's a lot of discussion, confusion, I think on that particular subject. Let's look number five at the purpose of sign gifts. Paul says <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. So Paul did sign gifts, and quite frequently. He says, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So with those three terms, he's describing what, the, what these miraculous gifts were like and the purpose of sign gifts. The first thing he calls it is a, he says, I did signs, wonders, and mighty works. A sign is, it's, it's a word that means a mark, it's a marking. It's something that identifies you with or as somebody. For instance, if you have friends or family, maybe you're a little kid and you roll up grandpa's t-shirt sleeve and you see it, he has a tattoo maybe, and, it, and he identifies, it identifies him as belonging to say the, the 101st Airborne. And so I can tell, grandpa, what does that mean? And then grandpa begins to tell you about how, well, this shows you that I was a part of this, 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 this famous unit or division. I wasn't a soldier, so I don't know. Uh, this group of guys <laughs> who did whatever 101st Airborne did. And so it identifies him, it's a sign. In the same way, God, I hate to use the term God tattoos, but God marks and identifies certain individuals as coming from God and therefore having the authority to issue new scripture. So it's a sign. Wonders, this is a word that just means to astonish. It's shocking, like with uh, Elimus the magician, uh, the proconsul says was astonished. It's meant to shock you. It's to surprise you. It's supposed to be out of the ordinary. What is this? It's supposed to get your attention. And then he says there are mighty works. These are not small little miracles that, that these people are doing. You know, be healed of acid reflux, right? It's, these, are, these are not small. This is the word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. That's why he calls them mighty works. These are mighty, miraculous, astonishing gifts so that you look and go, whoa, whoa. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. Moreover, I've never heard of anything like that in my life. What is going on? You're meant to ask that question and then listen to the guy's message. Okay? So there's signs and wonders and mighty works. I have to add this here, though. A sign gift is not given by God to entertain believers. Sign gifts are not meant to excite people. They're not meant to grow churches. Hey, come to Unity Baptist Church. Did you hear all the signs, wonders, and mighty works being done there? That's not the purpose of a sign gift. The purpose of a sign gift is very clearly, remember we, call, we said it's a sign. It's a mark to identify somebody who's able to give new scripture. And so a sign has always been a form of, therefore, authentication. It's the signature of God in person. I sign off on this guy. He alone is authorized to give you new scripture. Listen to this guy. Famous Baptist minister years ago, Augustus Strong said this. He says, anytime a miracle occurs, you know, in scripture or in just in the timeline of history, he says it is associated with the certification of a teacher or a leader as being commissioned by God. That's the purpose of a signed gift. It has no other purpose. Its purpose is to identify this guy's from God. He is authorized to give new scripture. So when somebody arises in history claiming, hey, I have, new, I have a new book of, of the Bible. I have book 67, because there's 66 books in the Bible. I have book 67, you ought to listen to me. We would say, well, let's see the signs, right? So we, that's why God gave signed gifts. He didn't just ask you to take this guy's word for it. Hey. I got a great new book. Wouldn't it be nice if there was another testament of Jesus Christ, as some cults will say? And we would say, no. The Bible is complete. Jesus said in John 16, through you, the apostles, the Holy Spirit will guide you, apostles, into all truth. Nobody else. So when the last apostle died, 
Scriptures are done. We're not looking for new truth. We're not looking for new prophecies. We're not looking for added scriptures. And in Revelation, just puts an exclamation point on it. Do not add to the words of this book unless you really like plagues. So we, are not ta- we don't need new revelation. We don't need sign gifts to, to authenticate anybody to give us new scripture. Sign gifts always authenticated somebody who's giving new scripture. Look at the example of Jesus, John 10, 37. Jesus says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, if you don't see these miraculous things, he says, don't believe me. Remember, because there were, there were like 60 some people claiming to be the Messiah at that time. He says, but even if you do not believe me, you don't like me, you don't like the way I dress, you don't like the way I talk with my Galilean accent. He says, at least believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I'm in the Father. Jesus said his sign gifts were, its purpose was to authenticate him as coming from the Father. Jesus said that. We see when Moses came, and Moses wrote new scripture, didn't he? Exodus 4, verse 5, before God tells him this, Moses saying, oh God, these people aren't going to listen to me. Why would they ever listen to me? I grew up in the Pharaoh's palace. You know, I'm slow of speech. They're not going to listen. And God's like, what's in your hand? It's a staff. Throw it on the ground. It becomes a serpent. Why did God give Moses that gift? Was it so he could be the fun uncle at Christmas activities? You know, hey, look at Moses. Go ask Uncle Moses what he can do for you. you know, wow. You know, is that the purpose of these gifts? The purpose of this gift, God tells him, the reason I'm giving you these signed gifts is so that you can, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. So God acknowledged the reason I'm giving you, Moses, these sign gifts are so that they understand that you're authorized to give a new message for me. Elijah, same thing. Elijah raises a widow's son back to life. And then what does the widow say in response? First Kings 17. Now, having seen this miracle, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. I was a little suspicious at first that maybe you're a prophet, maybe you're not, but now I get it. I can see that you do things that only God can do. Paul, we just talk about in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were done among you. There were a lot of false apostles out there. How do we know the ones that are from God and authorized to give us new scripture? They can do things that only God can do. Okay, so sign gifts have always been a form of authentication. They're not a toy for man to play with. They're not a church growth model. It's not something to sell out stadiums where you do these, you know, supposed miracles and things. They're not meant to entertain us. They're not simply meant to spice up your devotional life. They're not meant to spice up and make the church service more exciting. Sign gifts always have been to authenticate a new messenger who's got from God that he has a new message. So number six, should we be seeking the miraculous today? A lot of times we look at miracles and we think, man, miracles just happen all the time. Can I tell you they didn't? The Bible represents, you know, give or take 6,000 some years of history here. There are, you know, percentage-wise speaking, there were very few miracles that were done. That's why they were called wonders. They astonished. You know, if Kevin's watching somebody do miracles every week, pretty soon somebody's going to do something miraculous and Kevin's just yawning. <sighs> yeah, I saw that one a couple weeks ago. You know, nothing special about it. For a miracle to be a miracle, for it to accomplish the purpose that God created it as a wonder, it can't be common. It's got to be something that no one's ever seen before. This is crazy. I've never heard of such a thing. But we have this idea somehow that miracles were always commonplace in the Bible and therefore they should be commonplace today. Can I tell you that miracles were only frequent and common during three periods of human history. When I say sign gifts, I'm talking about not God doing miracles, but God giving man the ability to do the miracles. There's a big distinction there. When God gives man the ability to do the things that only God can do, that's a sign. This guy's got a new message for you. The only three periods in history where God gave man the ability to do it were Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles. Do you see something in common with all three of those guys there? I hope so because it's already on the screen. You guys asleep? Okay. It's on the screen there. What do these periods have in common? They're all revelatory periods. They're periods where God is revealing new scripture. Moses, did he write some books of the Bible? First five books of the Bible are often called what? Pentateuch, also called the books of Moses, okay? And so after that, we have Joshua and we have books of history and such. Uh, Elijah and Elisha, did they write some books? You know, did they usher in a period of revelation? They sure did. We have the rest of the Old Testament, don't we? The prophets, Jesus summed up the Old Testament as the law, the law of Moses, 
and the prophets. What about Jesus and the apostles? Did they have anything to say about God? But did they ever? You got, you got the gospels and you have the whole rest of the New Testament. These are significant periods where there are signed gifts. They're, they're giving us new revelation from God. That's why during these periods, God wasn't just the one doing miracles. He gave man the ability to do it so that you would take notice and go, whoa, never seen anything like this before. Theologian B.B. Warfield says, miracles do not appear on pages, pages of the scripture, on pages vagrantly here, there, and elsewhere indifferently without a signable reason. They belong to revelation periods and appear only when God is speaking to his people through accredited messengers declaring his gracious purpose. So we ask ourselves a question, should we be expecting people to do these kinds of sign gifts today? I would respond to that question with another question. Should we be expecting book 67? Should we be expecting God to add to the Bible? Should we be expecting new scripture? If the answer is yes, then yes, look for sign gifts to authenticate them. But my Bible says that Jesus authorized the apostles and no one else to finish out scripture. And he says, and you'll be done when it gets to things to come. That's Revelation, and Revelation says, don't you add to it. So if we're not looking for new scripture from God, friends, can I tell you, we should not be looking for the sign gifts that authorize someone to write new scripture. And I know that's difficult to hear for some people who have just all their life heard that sign gifts should be commonplace and we, you know, we should be expecting them. But friends, they didn't even happen in Scripture that way. And even if you look at your New Testament, sign gifts were already decrescendoing throughout the New Testament record. But the truth is, as humans, were we, did God intend for us to live our life by what we can see? The visual stimuli and just cool, exciting you know, events and experiences, is that what God expected for us to live by? What is Hebrews 11 that defines faith? What does it say? The just, those who are justified, those who are believers, the just shall live by faith. Specifically, the Bible says we are to live by faith and not by sight. Our Christian life is not dependent upon what I see, what I feel, what I can smell, touch, what I experience. Because if it's what I experience, now it's scientific data, it's not faith. God wants us to simply hear the truths of the pages of Scripture, to take God's word for it, to believe it, to see the signature of God upon these pages and say, I believe God enough that I'm going to obey what I see. I don't even need any explanation. I trust God. That's faith. What did Jesus say about whether or not we should be seeking after miraculous things. A couple of times to the Jews, who by the way, in particular, were always hoping that you know, Jesus was gonna be pen and teller, you know, always with some kind of crazy kooky you know, thing. Oh, yeah, well done. Again, show us something new. To the Jews, Jesus said twice, Matthew 12, Matthew 16, he says this, Matthew 16, four. And these are hard words to read, but he says this. An evil and adulterous generation does what? seeks for a sign. He says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Again, Jesus is a far harder preacher than I've ever been. He just lays it out there. He says, if, if in your life you're wanting to live your life based upon what you feel and what you experience and what you see, Jesus calls those, he, he calls that generation evil and adulterous. Evil meaning morally wicked. It's a word used in Revelation of the people who are wicked and God added to them the plagues. The term adulterous means I'm not happy with what God has given me. In, in marriage, we call it adultery because you're not pleased with the mate God gives you. So you look outside of your marriage, it's called adultery. God applies that term to his bride, the bride of Christ, the church. And he says, when we look outside of what God has given to us and say, this Bible's great and all, but it sure would be nice to have something beyond this, something exciting, something new. God says, it's an evil and adulterous generation that wants more than what I've given them. And he says, I'm not gonna give you more. What kind of people looked for signs in Jesus' day? King Herod, the rest of the Jews, the ones who are the unbelieving Jews. Remember King Herod, the one who, uh, you know, who killed John the Baptist, married his sister, that kind of stuff. Uh, he, was an, he was an evil man by every measure. And it says in Luke 23, eight, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Why, because he wanted to learn of Jesus' morals? No, it says he was very glad. He had long desired to see him because he heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. 
Herod didn't want to live by faith. He didn't want to follow God's word. He just wanted to be excited about something. But God rather delights when his children are willing to just hear his word and obey, isn't he? Remember, remember the apostle Thomas? What do we usually call Thomas? He usually has a description. What do we call him? We call him Doubting Thomas. Why, why do we call him Doubting Thomas? I mean, the guy lived, you know, lived, lived with Jesus and, and then after, you know, served Jesus greatly. We remember that one mistake and now all y'all are judging Thomas. But it's a very famous story. Remember the other disciples, they see the empty tomb and they're like, whoa, something great's happening here. Thomas is like, yeah, I'm not gonna believe that. Not until I do what? I'm gonna take my own fingers. I'm gonna put them in his nail prints. I'm gonna put them inside his sides until then I will not believe. Well, at some point in time, Jesus does come back and he does reveal himself to Thomas and he shows him and says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And he's like, my Lord and my God. And what did Jesus say in response to Thomas? You have seen and have believed. Where's the real blessing? Blessed are those who have what? Not seen and yet believed. You tell me, does Jesus want us to be looking for things that we see and go, oh, that was exciting. Is, is that what Jesus wants us to do in church? I'm not saying I want a boring church worship service. Theron, I'm grateful for the service that we have, okay? I don't want a boring church service any more than anybody else. This is not a funeral parlor. It's a, it's a place of life. But is that simply what we live for is to be excited in our senses to what we can see? It's not. Blessed are those, Jesus says, and that word blessed, it's the same one used in the, in the Beatitudes to describe true believers. It mean, it's a word that means the person upon whom God's grace and favor rests. It's a true believer. True believers are those who don't have to see, and yet they believe. That's what Jesus is looking for, people who don't need uh, Penn and Teller. They don't need a, a, a David Copperfield. They don't need a show. They don't need parlor tricks to follow God. They see his word, and they believe, and they worship 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, they wanna go beyond the Bible, they just wanna have philosophic argumentation that appeals to academia. He says, but as a church, what are we supposed to do? We preach Christ crucified. That's what we do as a church. He says, the Jews are like, give us a show, show us something exciting, do something amazing, give us something new every Sunday, make glitter fall from the sky, give us fog and laser lights, do these miraculous things, excite us. That's what the Jews wanted. The Greeks wanted to just talk about philosophical argumentation. They just wanted to talk about the world and academic terms. They, they weren't so much about the Bible. But Paul preached to the Corinthians. He says, here's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the old rugged cross. We go back to the old, old story and we tell it again. The story about how God created man and woman to be in his image, but we rejected him. God who is perfect and holy, who cannot dwell with, with that which is sinful and evil. God who is holy and therefore must be just and punish all sin, including our own, that God. And, he, and because we have offended an infinite God, our punishment therefore must also be infinite. If we're gonna pay for our own sins, we have to do it infinitely in hell. But in Jesus Christ, God's mercy is satisfied and his judgment. And so through Jesus who came, who is God and who became a man and he lived a life we could not, he obeyed the law where we could not. And Jesus Christ who willingly gave himself to die on the cross for our sins and was beaten and he bled out and he died. And while on the cross says, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sins, the infinite sins of all mankind are put onto this infinite being on the cross, it was enough to satisfy the wrath of God so that if we will believe in that message. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you understand who Jesus is, and you are willing not just to pray a prayer to get out of hell, you repent, you turn from your sins. The sins which you once loved and defended, you hate because you know God hates it. The God that you used to think was boring, who is a killjoy. Church, which you thought was the most, it's doomed for a small child. I don't wanna go to church. Give me coloring pages or something. You know, I now long to be near God. I want to hear the truths of his scripture. I've repented. I've changed from loving those things. I now love these things. We've repented. We've changed in our heart and we've received the message of Jesus for ourselves and we put our faith in what Jesus did alone, not in my good works, not the fact that my grandpappy was a, a preacher. 
I'm, my faith is in Jesus Christ alone. And when we do that, he says, if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Lord of your life, you let him call the shots. You're living for him. You believe in your heart the gospel message that God has raised him from the dead. What does he say? You will be saved. Doesn't matter who you are, or where you come from. This as a church is what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. You can go to other churches and they're gonna drop gold dust from the sky. They're gonna set up fire tunnels. They're, they're gonna set up honey pots and they're gonna get drunk in the spirit and they're gonna bounce around. They're gonna roll on the floor in laughter. There's even churches that do holy, you know, uh, spiritual vomiting and barking in the spirit. And all, there's all kinds of crazy unbiblical stuff out there, friends. And those people look like they're having a good time doing it. But can I tell you, it doesn't follow the standard. I just leave you with this. 1 John 4, 1. Remember, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Many different spirits are going out into the world. Do not believe every spirit, but rather test the spirits. Hold everything that you see, everything that you supposedly experience. Hold it all to the standard of the word of God. Test it to see if it is of God. Hold fast to that which is good. Friends, because he says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you this morning that as, as we stumble through life, and there's a lot of people purporting to be, you know, masters of the metaphysical, people who are promising to show us these, these grand experiences, experiences that we can have, and they promise us uh, all kinds of just neat and exciting things, and, but there's a lot out there that just isn't scriptural. God, I pray that you would help us as a people, as Unity Baptist Church, to walk by faith, not by sight, not to walk by what we can see and what we can experience, but God, help us to walk by faith, that we are people of the book, that we read your word, that we know of you through it, that we're willing to live it out and give our very lives for the message that's recorded here. Not because you've verified it through visual stimuli, but because we believe you, God, and we believe that this is the book come from you, and we believe the message that it gives us. Help us to hold fast to this as an anchor to our souls. Even when the rest of the world is departing from this, God, help us to hold fast to your truth and to the, to the word that you have given to us. God, help us to be contented with what you have provided us, not to be seeking something beyond, something something just visually stimulating to us. But God, help us to find just joy in the truth and the knowledge of who you are. Truth in the gospel message, truth in the fact that you have saved us from our sins, that we do not need to fear an eternity in hell, but that we have eternal life through Christ and that he is right now living his life through us. God, may we find joy in that and be contented with that, we ask in Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. <laughs>